Hello and welcome to the Quick Start Podcast, a daily devotional hosted by the pastors and members of Living Hope Columbus. We're glad you're here. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open up to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, uh, we had our, not we, I wasn't there, but we had a ladies retreat this weekend. Um, 19 of our ladies got away for a couple of days, heard a bunch of good reports uh, for over the weekend, heard Chris Murphy just crushed it in her teaching over the weekend, which is awesome. But more important than that, can we celebrate for a second that all the dads survived like 30 hours with their kids, right? I've talked to a couple dads. <clears throat> All of our kids are still alive. They ate, not necessarily healthy, but they ate, and we could celebrate that. Man, that's, that's so, so good. I'll be honest with you, though. I got to about the last two to three hours with my kids, and I'm like, just go watch a movie. I can't do this anymore. I'm out. So uh, it's crazy. Um, hey, if you didn't hear, and I was just thinking about this in the hallway, um, so this past, it's just been kind of like one of those weeks, and I know it has been for several people. My father-in-law earlier in the week fell off a ladder, um, hit his head, got a skull fracture, five brain bleeds um, in his. There's been other stuff, people in our, our church family just dealing with this week. I slipped a rib on Wednesday night. I don't know how I did that. So if you see me cough and wince this morning, it's because somebody feels like they're stabbing me. And uh, I just got to thinking about this, like how can we have joy in the midst of all of that? And it's because our hope's in Jesus, Right. Right, Pain is a reminder that this place is not our home and we're not meant for here. Um, but also just the reminder today, I want you to think about this. Um, so not only do we have a dynamic kids ministry going on where we have a group of kids that are learning about the Bible, Jesus, truth, and hope, which is awesome. Um, we're singing truth from the platform this morning about reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word in the midst of things that don't feel so good. This morning we're going to be learning from Romans 2 about the importance of repentance and the life of a human being and a follower of Jesus. If you didn't know this, um, the world doesn't want us to teach repentance anymore, right? You can be okay with who you are because that's the way you're made. No, the Bible actually says something different. You're broken, scarred, and you need fixed, and only Jesus can do that, and that starts with repentance of sin. After church today, we have an evangelism class. Uh, We already have 12 people signed up for that. You know that less than 1% of Christians will ever lead somebody else personally to faith in Jesus before they die. And so we want to change the tide on that statistic. And then after that, we have deliveries going out for the Finding Hope Center. And I was just reminded, we don't have a lot of things right at this church, but we're doing a few things pretty good, and the devil doesn't like that. And so in the midst of all the pain, let's just remember Um, God is doing a miraculous work in the midst of our church family, uh, our middle of a miracle, a lot with a dot story. And when you do things that push back against the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of darkness doesn't just collapse back, they push back too. And so let's remember that in the midst of this. When we experience some of these trying situations, oftentimes it's because we're pushing back against an enemy who's going to push back against us too. But we know, Revelation 21 and 22, who holds the ultimate victory? Jesus. As Billy Graham once said, I don't worry about anything because I know how the story ends. I love that. Romans chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you'll stand with me. Week 9 of our series, The Genius of Jesus, verse by verse through the book of Romans, entitled today's message, Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. You've probably read that book this morning before, and I titled that because this 
passage is about judgment and repentance. <laughs> Those of you on, online, you can turn the stream off if you need to, all right? Re- Romans chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And we know that God's judgment is judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Verse 3, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And He will repay each one according to His works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. And there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. There's a lot there, but let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to help guide us this morning. Lord, we love you. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, it's a fixed hope, an unchanging hope. And I pray we're reminded of that this morning. God, now as we walk through these 11 verses in Romans 2, as we ask each week, would your spirit teach us? God, would you mold us and form us and shape us into the image of Jesus? God, it's the word of God that accomplishes that very task. And we want to be more like Christ when we leave today. And so, God, we ask that you do that in our hearts. Would you give us ears to hear from you, soft hearts, not just to hear, but to receive your word. And as James says, may we not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, obedient followers of Jesus, seeking to live out the truth that we uncover in your scripture today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I can remember a very popular evangelism tool, and maybe you've heard of this one before, but it was called Share Jesus Without Fear. I can remember it being very popular when I was a teenager, and basically this evangelism tool, and this is relevant today because, as I said, we're doing an evangelism class right after church. It's not too late to sign up, but I can remember in this tool, I was taught it in my early teen years, there were five questions that you could ask someone to get them into a conversation about the gospel. Here were the five questions, and you could use this if you want to. This isn't as popular anymore, but a lot of people use it. You'd start off with asking them, what are your spiritual beliefs? Question number two was, to you, who is Jesus Christ? Question three was, if, if you die, or I'm sorry, do you believe that there is a heaven and a hell? Question four was, if you died, which place would you go? And if heaven, why would you say that? And the very last question was this. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about those four questions I asked you. Do you mind if I share with you what it says? And what's interesting is I can remember as a young teenager learning that method of sharing my faith, going out and doing that, knocking on doors. We used to do that when we were younger, knocking on doors, using share Jesus without fear. And when you got to that question, if you died, where would you go? Do you know where probably 95 plus percent of people believed that they would go? It's participatory. Heaven. 
I mean, most people, when you ask them that question, where are you going to go when you die, if they have uh, 71% of Americans right now say that they're a professing follower of Jesus, right? That's the vast majority. You ask them that question, where would you go when you die? The majority of people would say, I would go to heaven. But then you ask them the follow-up. Okay, if that's the case, then why would God let you into heaven? You know, of the 71% of people that profess to be followers of Jesus, only 30% are, quote, practicing Christians, meaning that they go to church weekly, read their Bible occasionally, pray over meals, and would actually do things that we would maybe qualify as Christian things to do. And so you ask them, why, why would God let you into heaven? And you know what the predominant answer was to that question? Because I'm a good person. You see, think about this with me for just a second. I began wrestling with this as I was reading through Romans 2 this week. There's something innately inside of us as human beings that believe that we're good. And do you know where that's based from? I'm good because I'm not as bad as they are. My goodness stems from the reality that there's other people who are worse than me. And because they're bad, innately we believe as human beings, if we haven't been exposed to the true gospel, that I'm good. I possess good morals. I have good views on life. My life overall could be classified as good. Therefore, when God sees me and he puts my life on the scales of justice that people believe in, God will ultimately allow me into heaven. Why? Because I'm good. I do good things. Therefore, I'm a good person. And God will view my goodness positively. I think Paul has something to say about that in Romans chapter 2. If you were with us last week, we took eight weeks to go through Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 was predominantly written to a Gentile audience. If you remember in the scriptures, we talked about this early in Romans, there's there's two groups that Paul deals with in, in Romans, the first several chapters. It's the Jews and the Gentiles, those who were Jews by birth, part of the nation of Israel, from the seed of Abraham, and then there's the Gentiles. That's everybody else. So if you're here today, you are a Gentile. Congratulations. And specifically, Paul is now writing to this Jewish audience. Romans chapter 1 was to the Gentiles in Rome. Remember last week, uh, Scott talked about this. The Gentiles in in Rome were these polytheistic, pagan worshipers of just this variety of gods. We saw in Romans 1, they'd given them over to uh, just disgraceful lifestyles, where they were practicing things that were never meant for the human body, completely given over to two things. They were given over to self-satisfaction and personal pleasure as a means of worship. That was the defining marker of these Gentiles who were in Rome. And Scott really hit on this point last week, that because of the lifestyle they had chosen, because of the way that they wanted to live, they were completely void of any acknowledgement of the Creator God. Therefore, they were without excuse when they stood before Him in the day of judgment. Now in chapter 2, Paul transitions to a different audience. Now he's talking to a Jewish audience who was in Rome. It's interesting, if you're a Bible nerd, you can notice this shift. In Romans 1, Paul uses the, the pronouns of they and them quite a bit. Now in Romans, in Romans chapter 2, he moves to you and we. He's making a distinct transition here because now Paul is referring to his people, to the Jewish people. And you'll notice what's so interesting about this is, uh, again, he starts in Romans chapter 1, Gentile audience, polytheistic, pagan, God-haters. 
Now Paul says, all right, I'm going to talk to my people who think that they are good, who think that their goodness is based on simply their morality, and they're nothing like those Gentile pagans. And the problem was, was these Jewish people in Rome didn't think that they needed the grace of God in their lives because they believed their morality, sounds so familiar, doesn't it, was based, or their goodness was based on their own personal morality. And what does Paul do? He says, <laughs> yeah, right. And he dismantles their whole argument. Two points for us real quick this morning. Paul points out first to the Jews in Rome. He says, first off, you all need to understand that you're just as bad as the Gentiles. You're just as bad as those Gentiles that I just wrote to you about in chapter one. There's a literary style he uses in these first four verses. If you're, again, a Bible nerd, you can write this in the, the margin of your Bible. It's called a diatribe. So Paul's using this literary style called a diatribe here in the first four verses, where basically what he's doing is he knows the attacks that these Jewish people in Rome are going to kind of put up against him. Yeah, Paul, but you didn't think about this. Paul, you didn't think about this argument. And Paul says, no, no, I've already thought about it. Here's the answer before you already tell me what I haven't even thought about. So he gives them the answer and refutes the very things that he anticipates they're going to say. I like to think about it this way. You ever been in an argument with your spouse before? No, never, Right? Never, no, not at this church, me neither. Here's what we do. Like you know, men, let's just be honest, you know when you've ticked your wife off, yeah? We're never ignorant of it, ladies, if you need an insight into the mind of a man. We know when we've made you mad and we've calculated the cost in advance, just so you're aware. We're fully aware of it. And here's what we do. Wife comes home, we know she's gonna be angry, and what do we say? I already know what you're gonna say to me right? And that's exactly what Paul's doing with the Jews here. He says, I already know what you're going to say to me. I already know that you're going to be frustrated with me about what I'm writing to you. And he's got his argument prepared. Look at verse 1, right out of the gate. He says here in Romans chapter 2, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the very same things. What's Paul saying here? He says, you as Jews are judging Gentiles, saying, well, we're not as bad as them. But what's he remind them? He says, hey, you're without excuse too. It doesn't matter that you're a Jew. It doesn't matter that you follow all these things of the law. You are without excuse. That phrase, circle it in your Bible, judges without excuse, actually means that you are without any legal defense. Paul says, you're condemning, ready for it? We do this too all the time as Christians. You're condemning those people And Paul says, you're blind to your own sin. You're holding a mirror up to those people, those sinners who do those bad things. Paul says, you're blind to the very sin that you yourselves are committing on a regular basis. I mean, this sounds like what Jesus said. I thought about this in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 3. Remember this? Jesus said, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? If you never thought Jesus cracked a couple jokes to get his point across, you're missing what's going on here. I mean, he said, think about this. You've got to look. I mean, we've all had splinters before. It's terrible. He says, look, you you see this little speck in your brother's eye. He said, you've got a two-by-four hanging out of your own eye, and all you see is the splinter in your brother's eye. And what does Jesus say? How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your own eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Then what's he called in verse 5? This stings a little bit. Hypocrite. He said, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly 
to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Friends, listen to this this morning. I think this is a very um, important word for us as Christians today in the context of what Paul is saying to these Roman Jews. Our sinful actions may be different than other people, but our unrighteousness is still the same. Let's not forget that. Our sinful actions may be different, but our unrighteousness before a holy God is still the same. We might not commit the same sins as other people, but we're all still sinners. And sin is an abomination before God that's only resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. My morality is not based on anything that I do as these Jews believed. It's wholly based on Jesus. And be careful. I'm so guilty of this, and I'm sure you are too. Be careful and be cautious of allowing your own personal self-righteousness to overshadow the sinful heart that you still possess. Don't let your personal self-righteousness overshadow the sinful heart that you still possess. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be in the exact same boat as everybody else that doesn't know Him right now. But it's because of Jesus that we're declared righteous before a holy God. So Paul says, we're all consumed with sin. He's reminding these Roman Jews of that. What's he say on verse 2? He says, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. So what's the truth here? We said it just a moment ago, God is righteous. And when we fail to meet God's righteous standard, what's the result? Judgment for sinners. It's a basic fact. He knew the Jewish audience would agree with him on this. God judges sin and God judges sinful people. No argument there. But in verse 3, in this diatribe, he's anticipating what they're going to say next. What's he say? Do you think, Paul says, I already know what you're going to say. Do you think that any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet you do the same, that somehow you will escape God's judgment? What's going on here? The Jews had rationalized in their minds I'm not as bad as those Gentiles that we read about in chapter 1. My religious actions, my moral actions are better than them. Therefore, I'm good. And in some way, they had believed and convinced themselves that because the Gentiles were worse off than they were, that God's judgment was not going to fall on them, but it would wholly fall on the Gentiles. And they had nothing to worry about. So what's Paul do? He has to dismantle this self-righteous morality that these Jews were possessing, somehow thinking that made them right with God. Let me give you a couple little reminders here just from that one verse. First, if you depend on your own morality to stand before God, you already stand condemned. That's why the answer, I'm a good person to get me into heaven, will never work. Because that's wholly based on your own self-righteousness. And uh, Isaiah, I believe, was the one that said it is our our self-righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. I mean, they're worthless. Here's the second thing. This was a gut punch for me this week. You know, God's not impressed with any of your goodness. Remember the rich young ruler? He, he, He tried to let his goodness impress Jesus. What did Jesus say? Sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What did Jesus want? He wanted his heart. God's not impressed with our goodness, but you know what he is impressed with? The righteousness of Jesus that can be credited to your account. God never looks at any of our good deeds and bends down from heaven and goes, I am so proud of you. Come on into heaven. Man, you did so good. God says, you filthy, this is is good preaching, you filthy, wretched sinner, 
Thank God my son died in your place because if it wasn't for him, you would be hopeless. I'm going to get in trouble for that on the radio probably. Guys, we're sinners. And we stand condemned before God, deserving his judgment. That's why at Living Hope here, we, we emphasize the finished work of Jesus on the cross so much. Because if it wasn't for the salvation of Jesus, we would be utterly hopeless. How often, like that Jewish audience, maybe this was us before, we think to ourselves, I'm good and I'm moral, therefore I must be Christian. It doesn't work that way. It's Jesus' righteousness credited to our account that makes our standing before God right again. Verse 4, Romans 2. Paul says, do you despise the riches of his kindness? His restraint and his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There's our good word there. Paul tells these Jewish folks in Rome, he says, God's given you every opportunity to repent of your sin, so much so that he's restraining his wrath against you right now, and his kindness, like calling you to repentance. Let's not neglect the grace of God that's being extended to every human on the planet right now, and remind ourselves of these four truths, that God is better than we deserve, he's kind to us when we ignore him. He's kind to us when we blatantly mock him, and he's still willing to forgive us. Every person that you see in the media or that you encounter in your community or in your work or even in your family that is choosing to blatantly mock God and mock God's standard and mock God's church, God is still exercising kindness and restraint against them. Why? Because he desires that everyone come to repentance and knowledge of him. He wants people to repent of their sin and be right with him yet again. So what's the point to these Jewish believers? It's simply this. You're just as bad as the Gentiles and your sin runs just as deep. What's the point to us? Let's remember, we're just as bad as those that we often condemn and our sin runs just as deep as theirs. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be in the same boat and our God is still willing to forgive and I thought about this this past week, and again, just more gut punch. I felt the Lord taught me so much in these 11 verses. Let's make sure as the church, let's make sure as followers of Jesus, that we preach a message of judgment against sin. Our God judges sin and sinners, right? That's true. But judgment without a message of the hope of the cross is an incomplete gospel. And let's not forget that. We stand for biblical truth in this church. We need to stand for biblical truth in our lives. We need to preach a message that our God is righteous and he's holy and he cannot stand sin. That's true. But a message of judgment without the hope of the cross is an incomplete gospel. We have to give people the hope of Jesus too. We continue on in these verses. Paul transitions to verse 5. He's understanding now that this, this judgment awaits sinners. We said that in verse 4, so it feels like an echo chamber right here. He says, all Jews and Gentiles, you're all alike. You're all bad. You're all sinners. He wanted the Jews to understand that. He wants us to understand that. And then here's point number two. Not only are we just as bad, but you're just as judged. Now, Paul is addressing in this chapter, again, self-righteousness as a means of morality. He wanted these Jews to see that they needed to repent of sin, but then he's reminding them now, transitioning in verse 5, that if you do not repent of sin, that judgment and the wrath of God awaits you. 
Just as in chapter 1, those Gentiles in chapter 1 refused to acknowledge God. That was all of Scott's message last week. And what was going to result? Death. God's judgment. That was the very last verse in Romans chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, what's he say? Jews, self-righteous, moral people, religious ones, okay, but if you do not repent of your sin and acknowledge that you need the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus in your life, you're still unrepentant, what awaits you as well? The judgment of God. Look at verse 5. Paul says, because of your hardened and your unrepentant heart. He says, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Take note of this. Again, when your righteousness is built on your own goodness, rather than the finished work of Jesus, Paul gives us this picture that you just live in this perpetual state of unrepentance, right? It's like, Jesus, I don't need you. I got this on my own. I'll do morality on my, my, myself. Self-righteousness, I got it taken care of. I don't need your grace in my life because I can do this. The Bible calls that the unrepentant heart, the hardened heart. This is so important. Circle that in your Bible, the hardened heart. That's a medical term. It's used only here in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, nowhere else in the New Testament. When you see that in the Scriptures, you need to pause. That means it's important. The hardened heart literally means here, it's a medical term that, that Paul was using. It's when the heart, um, um, what are they called, arteries begin to thicken. And they thicken, the walls of the heart begin to thicken. And you know what happens medically when your heart walls and your chambers, everything begins to thicken? You can't pump blood effectively anymore. And Paul says, when you remain unrepentant, your heart becomes no longer pliable and elastic anymore. It doesn't have the ability to pump blood like it wants to. What's the picture for us there? The picture is the unrepentant person who, who no longer, who no longer really has the ability to repent because they're, they're just pushing God away over and over and over and over, and their heart is beginning to stiffen, and those walls of the arteries are beginning to thicken. Now, this is a dangerous thing. Self-sufficiency in your own righteousness is a dangerous pit. Think about it this way. Imagine that we go out into a field together after church, because that's what we do. It seems like a fun thing to do after church. You grab a shovel out of your trunk, because you probably have that too, weirdo. We go out in this field, and we dig a hole. Let's say we get about four or five feet down. We can still get out. Let's say we get about six, seven, eight feet down. What begins to happen the, digger, the deeper that you dig that hole? Can you still get out? Yeah. But man, it's going to become a whole lot harder the further down into the pit we get. And the picture here in verse 5 is this unrepentant person, self-sufficient, who says, I don't need God's righteousness. My morals will get me there. I'm better than those people. And you dig this hole deeper and deeper and deeper on this unrepentant heart. And Paul says, it's going to become harder and harder for you to escape from that very thing. And so if we're unrepentant, what awaits us? We're going to get into some um, end-time theology here. So if you're an end-time theology nerd, this is for you. If you're not, give me five minutes and we'll get through this together. If you're an unrepentant person or a repentant person, the Bible says that you're going to be judged by God, that Jesus someday will judge you. And at each judgment, here's what's crazy, at each judgment, when you stand before a holy God to be judged for your life, you will be judged, you ready for this, going to throw some of you off for a loop, by your works. That's important to note. You will be judged, whether you are a repentant or unrepentant person, by your works. Paul says it in verse 6. So verse 5, he ends, God's wrath, judgment awaits. Then he says it in verse 6, and he will repay who? Each one. Each one, according to what? According to his works. 
you've been in church any length of time, some of you all right now, you're rattling off Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. It's not from works, but it's a gift from God so that nobody can boast. Aaron, you're, you're not teaching truth right now. We're going to tell Pastor Joe, all right? But the Bible makes it very clear. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but stick with me. You're also judged for your works, and that's the primary judgment that every one of us is going to have to endure. So let me show you this. So we've got, let's talk first about the repentant person. So we've got those people that Paul says, man, these are the ones who have repented of sin. They acknowledge that they're sinners. They know they need the grace of God. So the opposite of what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 2, their own self-sufficiency is inadequate for salvation, and they know they need Jesus. We'd call this person a follower of Christ, a believer, a Christian. I'm sure many of you, you would identify with that this morning. Those people will stand before God at what is known as, if you're a note taker, write this down, the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, someday you will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where you, as a Jesus follower who's repented of your sin, will be judged by Jesus, but your works will be judged. This is so cool. If you think this is boring, stop it. You will be judged by Jesus, your works, but this is the important part. Your works are not a means of salvation at this judgment. They are a means of reward. That's a distinction. If you're a follower of Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, your works are not a means of salvation. They are a means of reward. Let me show you this in two spots. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, second one he wrote. He said, for we all, he's talking to Christians, we must all appear where? Before the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word there, if you're a nerd, is bema seat of Christ. It's pretty cool. So that each may, watch this, be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What's Paul indicating? That the life you live, the works you did, will be judged by Jesus. That's important to note. Then he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15, as the first letter to Corinth, starting in verse 12, if anybody builds, so he's talking about your works here, builds on a foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. So that's an imagery that Paul's using there that God will judge your works. And there's a quality of works that we can possess, that we live out. He says the fire will test the quality of each one's work. Verse 14, and if anyone's work he has built survives, here it is, you will receive a reward. Again, these works are not a means of salvation. They're a means of reward. Verse 15, if anybody's work is burned up, so God judges them, and he says that was evil and terrible and garbage, he will experience loss, but he himself will still be saved. Because your works for a follower of Jesus are not a means of salvation. They are a means of reward. Your works are not why God would punish you, because he's not going to, because Jesus stood in your place and endured the wrath of God. But Jesus, God will still judge your works. When you got saved and you repented of your sin, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, says that your name was written down in what's known as the book of life. The beautiful thing about the book of life is once your name's in it, it can't be erased. God used a permanent marker and a sharpie in there. You cannot erase it. It is in there for good. Therefore, we don't fear judgment. Why? because Jesus already stood in our place. But God will still judge us at the judgment seat of Christ and he will judge our works. 
Look at verse 7 of Romans 2. He says, eternal life, so he's talking to those who have repented of sin, to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. He's talking about those who have repented of sin. Your volition was moved back toward God. You have new life in Jesus that comes from the repentance of sin. So what do you do? You do good. We do good things because we love Jesus. It's the overflow of who we are. We don't operate a ministry center somehow hoping, thinking, and praying that that gets more of us into heaven because we delivered furniture to people. It's not why we do it. Why do we operate a ministry center? Because Jesus extended us grace and we want to love other people from that grace we've received. It's not a means of salvation. We do good works because we love Jesus. Loving Jesus comes first and then we do good things. We don't do good things to get Jesus to love us. It doesn't work that way. Verse 10 he says, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and first to the, Greek, to the Greek, second to the Greek. Glory, honor, and peace are ours. Why? Because we've repented of sin. Let's talk about the second person. So if you've repented of sin and you're a Jesus follower, you will go to judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. But let's say you're the person in Romans chapter 2, the Jew who refuses to repent. You say, I'm going to trust in my own self-sufficiency. I don't need the grace of God in my life because I'm not as bad as the, those Gentiles. This would be the person we'd qualify as the non-Christian, the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, the Romans chapter 2, 1 through 5 person. Biblically, they will go through what's known as the great white throne judgment. Let me go ahead and just give you a little side note. Revelation talks about this. You don't want to be there. I say that in, in the most humble and solemn posture possible. You do not want to be at this judgment. Some believe it occurs in tandem with the judgment seat of Christ. We're not really sure biblically. They're talked about in different spots, but we're not quite sure when they occur. But you don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. Because first off, these are people whose names were not written in the book of life. Revelation 20 verse 15. They'd never repented of their sin. Therefore, their works will be judged, hear me, as a means of salvation, not reward. See the difference? For the believer... Works are not a means of salvation, they're a means of reward. For the non-believer, works are the means of salvation, of trying to prove to God that you're good enough to go into his heaven. Revelation 20, verse 12 talks about this. John says, I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. It's the books of their works. He says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. If you're a Jesus follower, your name's in that book, and it can't be erased. But then here's what it says here, verse 12, towards the end. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. People that were self-sufficient, self-righteous, not thinking that they needed Jesus. And what does Paul say in Romans 2.8? What awaits those people? Wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobeying the truth while obeying unrighteousness. John goes on to say in Revelation chapter 20 there that when God judges you, judges your works as a means of salvation, that they are insufficient and he will cast you into a place that's known as the lake of fire. The lake of fire where you will literally, friends, just burn forever with death and hell and Satan and all of his armies. It's God's, God is so righteous that that's the right response to sin and it's hard for us to swallow, but the Bible is very clear on it. It's, these are the people that say, I don't need the grace of God. I don't need God. I'm good and I'm righteous on my own. And what does Paul tell us? No, you're not. 
and don't depend on yourself for it. What's he say in verse 11? For there's no favoritism with God. You see, really what Paul's doing is he's summing up the entirety of chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 2 with this simple reminder that there is no partiality with our God. He says, I don't care if you're the Gentile or the Jew. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter. He said, God will not judge you based on your cultural heritage. It's not what matters. We could say the modern-day equivalent. God will not judge you at the end of time based on your skin color, your political party, where you live, where you work, how many children you had. None of those things doesn't matter. What's God's judgment based on? Truth. And the truth is that He's righteous and that we are sinners, and He hates sin. So when we stand before Him at the end of our lives, we have two options Paul gives us. You can stand at the great white throne judgment in your own self-righteousness, your own morality, and your own goodness. But as we said earlier, if you do that, you already stand condemned. There's no hope. But our God in His kindness and His restraint, right? Paul says, don't despise the riches of His kindness. He gives us this opportunity over here. He says, or you can stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And those, that's those who have repented of their sin because they understand that they can't stand before a holy God in their own morality because they're that would be condemning, but Jesus will stand in their place. I thought about it this week, and we'll close with this. Remember the band? I think they're still around, but Third Day? I think they're still around. They're not as cool as they used to be, right? But they have this song, and I don't remember when it came out, but I love this, this line in the song. I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to sing it to you. He said, what are you going to do when your time has come? Your life is done, and there's nothing you can stand on. Why? Because our works, I mean, they don't matter. They're a means of reward, not salvation. What will you have to say at the judgment throne? When you stand before God, remember our question in the beginning, why do you believe you'd go to heaven? Why would God let you in? Those over here will say, because I was a good person. And what'd Paul say to that? Ah, that's insufficient because you're not. But I love this line. Well, we have to say at the judgment throne, and I already know the only thing I can say, I trust in Jesus. He's the only hope we have, y'all, because without Him, we're hopeless. Let me pray for us as the praise team comes. God, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray if any of my friends, whether in person or watching us online or later on the radio, don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. God, if they've never repented of sin and actually given their lives over to you, that in this moment, wherever they are, Lord, that they would acknowledge, Lord, that they're a sinner and that the only hope they have is what Jesus accomplished on the cross for them, His righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. And that in this moment, that they would fully and wholly give their life over to you. God, we thank you that you're not a far-off, distant God who left us on our own, but you're a God who comes close and near on a rescue mission for sinners, not leaving us condemned in our sin, Lord, but offering us an opportunity to have our relationship restored with you through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We love you, Lord. Pray now as we sing that our voices are a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, and it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.
Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Quick Start Podcast. For information on Living Hope Columbus, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button and share this episode with a friend. We look forward to you joining us next time.